Welcome to PageCast, a podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers, aimed to give you the story behind the story. By interviewing the authors responsible for some of your most loved books, we explore the thoughts, ideas, emotions, and creative processes that led to the writing of these books. If you're a reader with a zesty interest in people and stories, do stick around and enjoy what PageCast has to offer. As most of you will know, um, Lionel is not only a world-famous novelist, a short story writer, a journalist. Uh, she's also an artist in her own right and studied fine arts. And um, she is a world traveler, a storyteller, and also somebody who has lived in all sorts of places. And whenever I have the opportunity to talk to a new author, I want to always know what are the beginnings, you know? M most, most of the people around us who are not writers don't have fake lives in their heads and they don't think about these characters and they don't think about plots and they don't live these simultaneous multiple uh, lives. And, and something happens to particular people who become then writers where that kind of process takes place. And I wonder, when did you first become aware of those stories in your head? What, how, how did you know that there are stories in my head that I need to share with audiences? Well, uh, I don't think this makes me especially unusual. Uh, I wanted to write pretty much as soon as I learned to read. I just thought, this is hip. <laughs> um, I want to do that too. In fact, um, because I, I did have a strong feeling for um, color and, and form, visual art, uh, also as a, a young child, uh, I decided that what I wanted early on was to write and illustrate my own books. And I distinctly remember a conversation with a friend of my parents who in that, you know, that kind of condescending way <laughs> said, oh, well, aren't you going to want to write uh, books for adults? And I, and I hadn't really thought about it. <laughs> I said, I suppose. And he said, well, grown-up books don't have pictures. <laughs> Completely foiled <laughs> my intentions. So when it came to my second novel, which um, called Check Checker and the Derailers, which is a, I would call it a rock and roll fair fairy tale, I did um, pen and ink drawings, little rapidograph drawings of all the characters in the book, and. Um, insisted that my publisher reproduce them at the beginning of each chapter. I was getting mine back <laughs> with friend of the family. <laughs> so, so I've now published a book in which I did my own illustrations for grown-ups. Mm. And have have you ever been? Have you ever had the opportunity to actually illustrate one of your covers? You know, I did um, an illustration for the post-birthday world because I was so frustrated uh, with uh, what the company was coming up with. Mm -hmm. uh, they refused to use it, but they did mock it up. In fact, I've got 
the mock-up framed in my study. So again, I did, I did, it, I did at least one copy <laughs> with my own cover. Um, and it, I think the, the nature of that cover, which is a, it's a picture of a piece of birthday cake, gave the publisher at least a nudge in the right direction and the designer subsequently did come up with a, uh, a cover which I quite like. It's in a, pi a picture of a cupcake uh, holder, you know, those mm -hmm. paper forms with a wedding ring in the bottom and it's perfect. Mm -hmm. So I, I felt that I at least played a part in the evolution of that cover. Mm -hmm. um, just reading any kind of biographical note on you, one immediately realizes that you are a migratory creature. You are American, but you have lived in many countries across the world for longer periods of time. You are now uh, settled in London. Where does that migratory impulse come from? I mean, um, apparently some of the first words I ever spoke in my crib were... I want out, which, <laughs> which translates, I want out. And that could be, uh, you know, the theme of my life. Mm -hmm. And I, I want out into the world, but I also <clears throat> want out of whatever boxes I was born into. And <clears throat> we're all born into boxes, mm -hmm. not of our choosing. And that's why subsequently, uh, I've become so opposed to the identity politics movement, which is all about putting us in and keeping us all in our boxes. And, uh, you know, I would freely admit that being female is not especially important to me. Uh, I'm sympathetic with the feminist movement and I'm grateful to my predecessors for having paved the way for me to not especially care about being female. Mm. You know, that's a privilege. Mm. Um, it's not terribly important to me, being American. Everyone has to be from somewhere. <laughs> I could do worse. <laughs> um, and I went through an uncomfortable period in the earlier to mid part of my life when I was very apologetic about being American. That didn't do me any good. Um, it didn't get me out of being American. Um, it, and it, I, I, at a certain point I stepped back and I realized this is a cliche, in fact. Uh, liberal Americans, which at that time I think I still qualified as, um, tended to believe that they could disavow their heritage. That if they were especially critical of the United States and really disdainful of, of, of Americans in general, then they sort of earned themselves out of the category. It doesn't work. And um, furthermore, there's something um, disreputable about it. That is, it doesn't make you look very good, that you are ashamed of your background. Um, and, and sure, I'm sure that in South Africa, this is a big feature. Mm -hmm. So this is the right audience for this conversation. Um, there's plenty to be ashamed of in this country. But if, if you let that, if you run away with that, then it's just negativity and poison and shame. And that's just not a place to live your life. There's nothing wrong with it, you know, I can acknowledge, yes, the United States should not have um, should not have uh, massacred all the Indians and and had slavery. And, 
but that doesn't mean that, that that's a healthy place to stay all the time. And, you know, current politics are mm. heavily about this process and what is, what is a productive way to address that past without just living in the past and letting it, letting it, you yourself drown in it. I mean, guilt has its uses, um, but, uh, but it can also be just a, a very destructive emotion. Debilitating. Um, you mentioned now slavery, and that's a, that's a very obvious American-African um, connection, but you have a very strong, uh, present, very personal, uh, connected to your life, connection to um, to Africa. You lived here for uh, quite a long period of time. Um, I'm not sure I'd call it in, a, a long period of time. I, I lived for over a year in Kenya, yeah, in, in which I visited mm -hmm. several times. Because, mm -hmm. um, and that was still a long time ago. There was 1990-91, which, and I was working on my fourth novel, Game Control. Yeah. And Africa has featured from the beginning of your, already in the first novel and, and throughout in your work. Um, is, it, is, it, is it a place that you, I know that I saw you at, at some stage at Open Book um, uh, during the festival there. Have you ever been to Franchuk before? Um, to this festival? My, my, my publicist uh, uh, eight years ago, when I was last here, uh, took me here just to see it mm -hmm. and, and said, uh, you know, if you're, this is the best literary festival in South Africa, and if you are ever invited here, you absolutely must say yes. <laughs> so, that publicist has, is now on the board <laughs> of this festival, and she wrote to me earlier this year, and I thought, I promised. <laughs> so, it's, it hasn't so far proven a big sacrifice. Um, you now live in the UK and have been living for quite a while. Is it a forever, or is that wanting to get out still there? Honestly, the wanting to get out is still there. My mm. husband and I are considering moving to Portugal. We're getting just old enough. You know that feeling that you've only got one big adventure left in you? Mm. I've got that feeling. Mm. <laughs> you have uh, set your novels also across the world. The latest that we are focusing on today, Should We Stay or Should We Go, <laughs> fits very much with the wanting out of the box. Um, is set in the UK. Um, in, in recent times, the pandemic even features. And, um, and it is about one of the most difficult topics that no matter where you come from, no matter what your background is, you will have to face. Death is the one equalizer that will simply put us in our place. Um, and it's also about aging. But it's not the first time that you wrote about aging or death. Um, your previous novel has also very strongly focused, especially on the aging part. But you already wrote about getting old in your first novel when you were, you, you, I think you wrote it in your late 20s? Yes, that's correct. 
So I know that at the, uh, in the, there is an afterword to a new edition of We Need to Talk About Kevin, mm. the book that you are most famous for, in which you say that you either um, write about something that you want mm -hmm. or you fear. Mm. I assume that this is a fear novel. Oh yeah, I think almost all the novels are fear novels. <laughs> <laughs> so, so has it really started as early as your 20s, this fear of what is it going to be like to age and to die, as strongly as this so that it manifests in, in these books? I think I was keenly aware of the pending decay, <laughs> um, perhaps a little <clears throat> earlier than some people. And I, I look back though at my first novel, which is about a, a woman who's 59, so about to turn 60, and I thought that was old. <laughs> I think that's hilarious now. Um, it's interesting too how we tend to, um, what our version of old is changes as we get older and the numbers keep going up. <laughs> um, but at that time I thought the, the dividing line was 60. Uh, I say 80. It's now moved to 80. Okay. <laughs> In fact, if I may introduce this book for those of you who have not yet read it. Um, it's about a couple in Britain, I did set it in completely in Britain with all British characters. There's no token American to, in sight. Um, and they, they both work for the National Health Service. Uh, and the novel starts there in their early 50s. Um, the wife's father, after a long and horrible uh, out of dementia finally dies and, and it's been so dreadful that uh, she can't even cry, which I'm afraid can happen because you have lost them already, effectively. Mm. Uh, and between that recent experience and the fact that they, um, they're a, a nurse and a GP, uh, they, uh, and having, they've seen plenty of patients who've had similar experiences and they resolve that they do not want to go that, that way. They don't want to um, burden each other uh, themselves with being not themselves. And, and there's a social dimension because they don't want to stress the NHS, which they have worked for all their lives. So they decide that uh, on their observations, 80 is about the limit of the good, the good life. And after 80, it's a big gamble. So why don't they just live their, their lives to the hilt? And then once they both turn to 80 on uh, the wife Kay's birthday, they're going to hit the exit together. And it's just one of those books that you basically turn the page and they're 80. <laughs> so it's a little bit like real life. <laughs> um, I... and, and most importantly, this book is a parallel universe yeah. book. So um, it has 12 different endings. 
so every chapter you go back and and whatever's happened to them in the last chapter you start again in fact it's got a structure which I would describe as arboreal almost mm -hmm. like a like a tree so that I, I branch off like this from different points so it doesn't always go back to the same point it goes back to different points and sprouts off um, from a, 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 di a different plot line a different point and it it's structurally playful and I think that it's the structure it's definitely the structure that makes the book it's what makes the book fun and it's what makes the book readable because otherwise um, who wants to pick up another novel about aging and death oh great um, yeah. but I think it's hilarious and <laughs> <laughs> and and very satisfying so I mean that's just my neutral opinion <laughs> I know that when I told one of my dear friends who has just turned 60 that I was reading this book and what the premise was, she said, oh, no, 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 I, I, I love Lionel Shriver's work, but um, I will I, I'll probably skip this one. Um, she, she really, she seriously did not want to engage. Mm. And, and I, when I was reading it, I thought that some of it, yes, some of it was very funny. I will never, ever forget, and I think maybe we can go into two or three of the mm. scenarios. But in one of the scenarios, they go uh, under that process that I cannot pronounce. Um, Cry cryogenics. Cryogenics. Yes. And by accident, while I was reading, I actually saw that in the States right now, there are 250 people who are frozen in that state waiting mm. for a miracle to happen. So it's not some kind of a distant futuristic thing. It's actually happening to people now. And, and where I laugh the most, and I will never ever forget this, is when they then wake up. Mm. And it is the future, and they can be both cured from whichever ailment they were suffering from, and can continue happily ever after. Um, there is a description of them as, you know, they don't feel exactly the mm. like they thought they would. Yes. And you say, well, if you freeze meat and it comes out of the freezer, it isn't exactly how it used to be for, before yeah, the process. That's exactly the metaphor. Yeah. I will never, ever forget that, and I've never looked at frozen meat <laughs> the same again. <laughs> I actually, I think that, that that's the chapter called Love Doesn't Freeze. <laughs> and I think it's the most heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's another chapter, for example, yeah. which is, you know, nursing home from hell. Mm -hmm. um, that one's funny, too. Um, <laughs> but, the, but love doesn't freeze is much more affecting mm -hmm. than that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, because this is, a, this is a book about a marriage, and so that you, each chapter you get a little more of the marriage and the marriage develops and changes in spite of the fact that it's they're all different futures as the reader I think that you you experience a building appreciation for their relationship and in the way in which it matures mm -hmm. through the book and um, so that's the only chapter in which the relationship falls apart they what has happened to them has what has not survived the freezing process 
is their feelings for each other and it's horrible it's actually horrible mm. so thank god there's another chapter after that <laughs> it's not the last one and and in it i, I don't remember anymore who, who, who says it whether it is Cyril or Kay but they, they say every decision we make in this life is a gamble and of course uh, it's like that we, we could we could every single day we could describe that kind of tree-like mm -hmm. parallel universes that could happen you know yesterday you almost didn't make it into the country yeah um, Don't, so let's not talk about that yeah <laughs> and 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 I could have been sitting here on my own and trying to I don't know to <laughs> probably read. perhaps you can yeah. juggle <laughs> Uh, I, I could go into parallel lives, um, but I was wondering, would that, f for you, because you, you, you do state that you write into your own fears, uh, but also it, it, in a public fear, we are for the first time, and this, this is something that really, uh, you know, I, I should have known, but it was only your book that really made me think about it, is that through modern medicine, through our lifestyles, through the kind of possibilities that we have, uh, we are facing a kind of life uh, in old age or, or, or just elderly um, that wasn't possible two or three hundred years ago on mm. a larger scale. So we are the first two, three generations that actually have to deal with the fact that you don't you know, fall over at 45 with a heart attack and that's it. Um, I think we're under aware of that. Um, we tend to think that uh, we've always had to face old age and decay. That's been true only to a very limited degree for most uh, generations of our species. We didn't used to get old, we just died. And, you know, uh, in the middle of the 1800s, for example, I happen to know this because I needed to look it up for mm. this book. Mm. Um, uh, the average life expectancy was 41. You know, you were lucky if you survived in order to reproduce, and then you died. You did not see your grandchildren. You didn't have grandchildren. They didn't have grandparents. Not on average. Uh, a completely different uh, understanding of what a normal lifespan is. So this is in many ways, of course, a great opportunity uh, to have a more of a vista, uh, but it, it, it comes at a price. And therefore, we are having to learn how to be old. And we are some of the first generations to have to master that. And it's not easy. And uh, I, I, I personally, don't know how to do it. <laughs> and it's also one of those processes that you only get sympathetic with once it's happening to you, mm -hmm. right? So people who are younger, well, there's almost a feeling like, first off, that you've entered a different species that has nothing to do with other people. Um, and there's also this feeling of, of having been closed off because once you pass a certain age, you're an irrelevance to younger people. And there, there, I think there's a, a feeling of almost 
like the sound having been turned off. So you, you're like behind the screen. It's like, hello, <laughs> it's still me. I haven't changed at all. You don't understand. And by the way, this is going to happen to you. <laughs> Get ready. <laughs> it's not. It's not like you think. Um, you're still the same person, but you're trapped in this thing, which is starting to fall apart. And it's really weird. <laughs> but they can't hear you because it's not happening to them yet. Uh, so it's, that's part of the weirdness. Is, is that sense of, of through n no fault of your own, mm. having aged into a category f that is alienated from everyone else. After all, when you're younger, you don't want to think about this stuff. And uh, I think one of the naivetes of youth is to imagine that the self is it is is young that you are young if you get the difference mm. that it is your natural exuberance that is that that explains why you can run around and and those people they're just tired and boring mm. <laughs> and that's the problem um it's just very hard. I think mortality is very hard to, mm. to internalize. I, mean, I still don't believe I'm going to die. <laughs> I will never forget how at a birthday party about 15 years ago, I photographed a woman um, who I thought that on that evening, she looked particularly beautifully. Mm. So she, she really, she was just glowing. And it wasn't her birthday party, but she just looked so beautiful. And I took a portrait photograph of her. And I was so proud of it. I thought it was one of the best photographs I've ever taken. Mm -hmm. So I, I blew it up and framed it and gave it to her as a gift because I thought that she looked stunning in it. Mm. And she looked at it and she said, oh, but I look so old. Mm. And I didn't see this. Mm. And then she said to me, you know, inside I'm always 18. Yeah. So it exactly is speaks to what you've just been saying that that it's it's that that feeling and and the reality of the body that hits one so hard. Yes. And I I think that was the first moment where it hit me that here I was what I thought I was celebrating beauty. She was celebrating loss. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I uh, by the way I'm. I'm not even 18, I'm 10. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you, you mentioned a little bit earlier about the scenario when, when the two of them... So, so in the story, there are the 12 different scenarios for this couple. They've been married for a very long time. They make this decision. Um, a lot about the decision and how they resolve it is about trust mm. and also about love. And and you, you, you said that only in one of the scenarios, so in the very futuristic one, it, it's, it's the only one where they do not end up together, mm -hmm. where, where the love is gone. And so, and uh, while reading uh, your other work, uh, there was one thing that I realized, that this is a consistent theme for me in the, in the books that I've read, that you always, in one way or another, write about love. Mm. And, um, and here it's extremely poignant because in most of the scenarios without love, none of the horror of them would be endurable. Yes, that's correct. So 
I wonder which one would that be the worst case scenario for you not to have the love? Yeah, I mean, you talk about fears. Uh, my husband is seven years older than I am, and uh, and I I live with almost constant dread. I try not to let it take over, and he is in good health, but I am in horror of my life without him. And, uh, and I, I honestly, I, I don't know, I don't know how emotionally I would manage that. I suppose I would, I, perhaps I will, I hold out the possibility, the rather happy possibility that I will predecease him. Um, but that's uh, I think I felt very early on a powerful desire for companionship, and in fact, my um, my novel, The Post-Birthday World. Uh, is about a woman who unusually for modern times was very honest with herself about the fact that even more than career success, she wanted a hand to hold. She wanted a relationship with a man that was enduring. And I think for women in particular, that's been a an embarrassing admission, which in my view, shouldn't be embarrassing. Uh, I think it's one of the deepest drives in us is to find a companionship. Um, it's way beyond sex. It's in there, but... And I'm just very sympathetic with that impulse. I am also the child of a very successful marriage. It wasn't the kind of marriage I wanted for myself. My mother was a little too subordinated for my tastes. <laughs> and I don't have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I may speak from personal experience, I am a widow. Um, uh, I married somebody who was uh, older than myself. And from the very beginning, I was always very acutely aware that if nature took its course, then one day I would be alone, as I am now. But um, I also confronted our fears um, in a book that was never published. There is only a copy that I wrote for, for my husband, um, in which I did exactly this. I imagined what would it be like to live without him. And so in the book, I wrote letters to him saying, this is how I think I will manage. But the story is about two other people, and then once the, those letters are delivered to the husband in the story, he finds out that his wife died in a car accident. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that age should be the last thing that should stop us from loving, because love is so... Like you said, it's, it's that one impulse that I think nobody should be ashamed of. Um, and it's also an equalizer. It's mm -hmm. that kind of vulnerability, like mortality, that makes us who we are and, and makes life more worth living and meaningful. Um, I don't know what I would do without people and love and companionship. But 
in your book, what I also found extremely heartening is, um, and it's, it's not only part of this one, but the, the previous one, which, which features all the time, is that there are certain things about old age that are actually quite a lot of fun. Hmm. And one of them is, as you called it in, I think, um, in the previous one, so this was, yes, this is the motion of the body through space. Uh, it's called the bliss of sublime indifference. Ah, yes. <laughs> and then in, in, in this one, there's this wonderful quote where um, one of the characters says, one of the few pleasures of living on death row was released from the linguistic tyrannies of the day. <laughs> Tell me what else is fun about aging? <laughs> I think that's the biggest thing. Um, not giving a shit. <laughs> and feeling comfortable in yourself in a way that just isn't possible when you're younger. There's something nice about being near the completion of a project, job well done, right? Um, there are fewer decisions to make. Uh, be, and that's, you know, that's, le that's a lessening of burden um, because you've made your decisions. Uh, and it changes your relationship to the future because the future uh, is potentially quite abstract. And you can elect to care about what happens after you die, but it's up to you. And if you don't want to care, you don't have to. <laughs> so, and, and I find, you know, that's great. So I get exercised about what I want to, but increasingly I can I can decide whether or not to worry about plastics or not, right? <laughs> um, uh, talking about decisions, uh, is this a spoiler if I mention this? Oh, no, that's not a spoiler okay. at all. Well, at, at the end of this latest novel, there is my advanced directive where Lionel, in her own name, because it is signed by her and it was published uh, by the Times first as an article, sort of says, this is what you need to do in case of. And I wonder, my advanced directive, is this binding? <laughs> is this going to you be know, followed? You know, I've wondered that, be because although I've, I've signed a, a, a stock uh, living will, uh, an advanced directive is a, is a little more particular it's in which you lay out to doctors and your family uh, the circumstances in which you would like to be let go. And we're all going to vary uh, what we're especially uh, in horror of, though it seems uh, from my reading that the most commonplace horror has to do with the bathroom. <laughs> Most people are, are especially appalled by the idea of losing control of their bowels. And that seems to be the defining limit. <laughs> um, which I find amusing. But uh, I'm not quite sure, I've you know, published that in the London Times, mm -hmm. but I don't know whether it's legally binding. I, 
Uh, I guess we'll find out. Um, th th this is the bit that I liked uh, really the best, although I have um, um, a, a question to the wine producers, perhaps in the room. Uh, you say, just keep me comfortable, which for me entails a paid-up Netflix subscription and a regular dosage of red wine. Only insert an IV in order to inject a good quality Australian Cabernet straight into the vein. <laughs> I think the wine producers in this room or in this valley should feel challenged that the next time you update this, it will be a South African one. You know, I'm glad you said that because the Cabernet I had last night inclines me to agree with you. <laughs> well, I'm glad that Frenchuk has won you over. Um, we have a few more minutes, and I think that we need to use them for, uh, uh, for the other huge theme in this book. Um, should we stay or should we go? Mm -hmm. Brexit. It's, <laughs> it's the other huge theme of the book. And I must say that coming from my own background, because I, am, um, I, I was born in Poland and my parents literally escaped um, uh, Poland in the 80s and crossed borders illegally and I became a refugee for, for several years until my home was found eventually in Austria and until today I'm an Austrian citizen but I've lived in South Africa for, for 17 years. I have this feeling that there is one quote about the European Union in the book where it says that alliancing uh, that that alliance being one of the greatest historical achievements of the Western world. Without being a truly political creature, just from my own experience, and having that experience of constantly crossing borders in a state of anxiety until today, and, and even thinking about your experience last night, mm -hmm. there is something that, you know, I can't help myself love the European Union for the concept that it, it, it is despite all its difficulties. And it was very difficult to see the uh, Brexit happen. And yet, there is something that your book made me realize, like we mentioned before, about this, that every decision is a gamble. And like the 12 scenarios that you present on a purely personal level of these two people deciding, are we going to do this, that this old age, this difficulty, this... <laughs> that's dying together or not, it's almost like, yeah, like a country also trying to decide, and there are 12 or maybe 212 different scenarios how it could go. We still don't really know what the consequences are going to be of Brexit uh, long term. And I, when I was reading this, I know what your, your official political sentiment is, and yet, mm -hmm. I was thinking of this, um, this epigraph to the novel. There is a natural tendency of any isolated system to, to degenerate into a more disordered state. And that's the epigraph of the book. So I wonder, do you still have doubts about Brexit? Okay. Oh, I did support Brexit. And... It was one of the most professionally destructive things I've ever done. <laughs> um, it didn't make me popular with uh, the literary community, which was 100% remain. 
Um, I have a mischievous side. I have a rebellious side. I have an anti-authoritarian streak a mile wide. And therefore, having that extra layer of government and bossiness uh, on top of uh, the national government w was just too much government for me. And also, the, the EU is anti-democratic by design. It's, that's not what it's about. In fact, it, 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 it increasingly, the project was to take power away from national governments and um, subjugate national governments to the will of the EU. And it's, uh, it's autocratic. Uh, it's, it's got a, uh, you know, an ethos of superiority and um, and it, 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 it regards itself as perfectly benign, but I do not believe that any kind of authoritarianism is perfectly benign. I thought that Brexit uh, gave the institution a kick up the backside that it definitely could have benefited from if it ended up instigating an a period of self-reflection. Of course, it didn't. Um, now, that said, I could easily have argued the side for Remain. Um, I saw the case very clearly. I'm afraid that I've never met a Remainer who could see the case for leaving. So, I think that, that means I've got a little more of imagination than the other side. <laughs> um, so, which was better for Britain. It's a kind of touch and go. Uh, it was always clear that there was going to be a short-term sacrifice, uh, at least economically. Um, I think it will end up not mattering that much, you know, considering what a hoo-ha we had over it. Um, partly because uh, Britain is unlikely to take advantage of its independence. Uh, getting rid of all the EU laws that have been codified within British law is a lot of trouble. Uh, and besides which, you know, the British invented bureaucracy. <laughs> so um, they're, they are not going to get rid of it. They'll just make more laws that are a lot like the EU. And in terms of the difference it will make uh, to daily life, it will be negligible. And of course, then there's the, this is, in don't get me started territory. But um, then there's the whole nightmare with the Northern Ireland protocol. So, which is completely uh, punitive from the EU side and unworkable from the UK side. So, watch this space. I know that Brexit denied me of one of my, my huge um, sort of alternative parallel universes um, because um, I, I lived in Wales for a year um, in my 20s and it's the only other place that I can imagine living outside hmm. of South Africa and I always thought that with my Austrian passport that should be a easy thing. Should I ever decide to move there, I would just go and say hello and please take me and, and let me work here. Um, um, but uh, yeah, that is not going to be as easy anymore. So, so I, I, I found it as a kind of acute loss of a parallel universe. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so, yeah. Uh, but um, but what 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 struck me was that reading your book, 
that it made me rethink that not knowing all the facts and also how how those yeah to 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 use your metaphor how the tree could grow you know it could it could grow in any direction maybe it is the first time ever that i after reading your book where i considered and not reading your journalism reading this book where i thought because it's nuanced that maybe maybe i might prove to be wrong and actually feel relief that it happened mm. for whatever reason you know because the meat has been frozen well i'm glad i, I chipped away <laughs> at your remainery um, <laughs> you should understand that any political issue in this book is used in order to explore character mm. uh, to advance p plot um, it's not a book about brexit it's not a book about covid covid features only a tiny bit um, partly because I was acutely aware that when we finally put the pandemic behind us, nobody is going to want to read books about COVID. <laughs> nobody. That includes me. <laughs> Even the little sections in that book, the tiny little sections, I would personally start skipping over. <laughs> um, the next uh, book that you are about to publish later this year is a collection of essays. What is the want or what is the fear that you are going to write about next in the novel? Oh, well, I don't, I don't talk about what I'm writing mm -hmm. currently. Uh, I will let you know what the title is. It's called Mania. We are out of time. I just want to say it is 35 years since the publication of your first novel. Thank you for 35 years of challenging us to think and uh, for writing these incredible books. And uh, I know that your birthday is coming up and I hope that you will be celebrating with a South African Red. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of PageCast. We have an incredible lineup of author interviews, so head over to our Facebook and Instagram and follow Jonathan Ball Publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes. Thanks for your interest in the story behind the story. Happy reading from everyone at PageCast. <laughs>